American Family. From the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College, I'm Matt Siebel. Next month, we'll be hosting our annual Summer Teachers Institute. For more information or to register, please visit marktwainstudies.org and click on the Events tab, or look for the link in the show notes. This year, the Institute will take place in the midst of a highly politicized national discussion of critical race theory, patriotic propaganda masquerading as education, and government intervention in classrooms and curriculums. Teachers at all levels are justly fearful of becoming victims of sensationalized media and political grandstanding. But at the same time, as we will discuss next episode with Jocelyn Chadwick, contemporary students, part of the so-called Generation Z, are impatient with teachers who are reluctant to speak directly or meet controversy head on. It is a uniquely challenging time to be a teacher in America. But as my guests on today's show argue, the tension has been building for over a decade. In their recent book, Teaching with Tension, Race, Resistance, and Reality in the Classroom, they offer both a historical account of how public school classrooms and college campuses became sites of volatile political conflict and strategies for teaching difficult texts and sensitive topics within such environments. Lee Bebo is Associate Professor of English at Arizona State University, where he specializes in Latino literature and Chicano studies. His most recent book is Whiteness on the Border, Mapping the U.S. Racial Imagination in Brown and White. Philathia Bolton is Associate Professor of English at the University of Akron, focusing on African-American literature and particularly black women writers like Zora Neale Hurston, Toni Morrison, and Paula Marshall. Cassandra Smith is Associate Professor of English at the University of Alabama, where she is also part of the Hudson Strode Program in Renaissance Studies, the Department of Gender and Race Studies, and the Somersell Center for the Study of the South. In 2016, she published Black Africans in the British Imagination, English Narratives of the Early Atlantic World. For more information about these guests and a bibliography of works mentioned in this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash teaching with tension. I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Lee Bebo, Philathea Bolton, and Cassie Smith. Let's start in 2008. One of the central claims of teaching with tension is that the tension emerges or perhaps re-emerges in 2008. And I'm really partial to this framing because many of my courses position 2008 as an epochal moment in contemporary history because of the global financial crisis that rendered the gross inequality and government capture of the preceding decades newly transparent to a larger portion of the populace. The, the emperor has no clothes after 2008. And resilient myths like meritocracy and the rational market hold much less sway over students who can say, what about Enron, Countrywide, Bear Stearns, Fannie Mae, Lehman Brothers, AIG, WAMU, Citigroup, Iceland, Goldman Sachs, fucking Greece, right? Students who have that narrative are, are a lot less subjected to the myths of neoliberalism. But also, in the dead center of this crisis, as you point out, we have an election. 
Uh, and as as Chris Rock so wonderfully puts it, George Bush fucked up so bad he made it impossible for a white man to get elected president. <laughs> and that's the moment that you point to as transformative for our classrooms. I think that's really interesting that the election of Barack Obama gives rise to a new narrative of post-racial America. And that narrative was very influential on many students who entered high school and college after 2008. And any discussion of race in contemporary classrooms runs up against the cognitive dissonance of, in many cases, students who are trained to regard racial discrimination and prejudice as problems that have already been solved. And so off the bat, first of all, I think this is incredibly compelling in part because it coheres with my own lived experience as a teacher. Mm -hmm. But I want to open by asking each of you to reflect back on this moment. What do you now remember most about the 2008 election and its immediate aftermath? What are people likely to have forgotten or underestimated about this event? Especially, as you point out in the book, because so many people have now situated 2016 as the sort of epochal moment. And how has your personal experience of that event informed your understanding of its pedagogical implications ever since? This is maybe a kind of who hurt you question, right? But Can I begin with the part A? <laughs> I know you have a part A and part B there. I think for me, I wanted to just revisit what you said is the tension piece in 2008. I want to, to just kind of to point back to the introduction as, as, as offering a couple of things. One is the idea of tension, but also this idea of, of, of a flashpoint. And so there really should be a separation between those two points of reference for understanding what we see as like a point of departure for framing a conversation that we offer in teaching with tension. And so the flashpoint idea basically argues that there have been moments throughout American history where we've had the hope of post-raciality in quotation marks, whether it's post-reconstruction, whether it's the gains of the civil rights movement, or whether it's the election of a black president. And so for me, I think what coheres all of these things is wanting the country to live up to its ideal. And now I'll use the word tension again, and the tension between the ideal and the lived reality of the narrative. So in 2008, it was like perhaps there's going to be less of, of a push and a pull between the more perfect union to, to, to use that 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 piece that Barack Obama often looks would use. Like we're 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 striving for a more perfect union. We know we're not there. And what we, we wrestle with in this country as it relates to white supremacy and the consequence of race. I think those of us who are exhausted by what it means to live in this country where race has been such a big deal, sometimes will allow, I'll speak for myself, our emotions and our exhaustion to force a conclusion or a resolution that is not quite there in front of us yet. So when Barack Obama was elected, I know I have this history behind behind us and, and I know intelligently that that we, we probably aren't there. But to see him and to hear him speak and to have the optics of a diverse crowd cheering for him caused the tears to roll down my cheek. It caused me to think that maybe we're safe, that maybe we are turning a corner. And I think as a country, we are very emotional 
We're emotional because of what race has meant and because of the narratives we we attach ourselves to. That looks differently for some white supremacist people who attach to Donald Trump. And I don't mean to equate these narratives and experiences because I think they're very different and the implications attached to them are very different. But I think whatever narrative we hold on to that we label as American and what what American looks like to us and what it means to be American carries with it immediately this emotional piece. With the election of Kamala Harris as a vice president and Joe Biden, there's a similar kind of thing for me too, but there's more hesitance. It's this idea of relief. You said, you know, the white man messed up so much that, you know, he messed it up for any other white man to be elected, Bush Jr. People feel differently about him now after some people, after Trump, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And I think that because of what we went through for some of us due to a Trump administration, there's just relief that there's another administration. So I think it's not so much we are better or we are here. We've arrived at a moment. It's more so kind of like falling into periods of relief because of of what it has meant to kind of deal with the drama of race and the histories of race in our country. That catharsis Mm -hmm. is dangerous because it's illusion. And I can, I can definitely remember myself falling victim to it. I specifically remember the night of the election, calling one of my friends in St. Louis where, where I had gone to school and he was still there and having this kind of, you know, epiphonic fawning over Obama and how things were going to change and, and him just being like, yeah, okay, man. <laughs> <laughs> My, I sort of, I sort of very much look back on that moment as a kind of loss of innocence moment for myself, right? That, you know, what I was expecting from the Obama administration was not what I got. And I'm never going to fall for that again. Right. Yeah. I remember watching the election results that night and being very happy that Obama won. And, you know, I still think it was the right, right choice. It was, do you make me happy all the time? No, hell no. Especially with deportations. But yeah, I remember watching the election results with a good friend and who also does race work and him saying, finally, we can put all this stuff behind us. Mm-hmm. I cringe. I'm like, nah, no, that's not it. And I didn't know exactly why. And I want to return back to what Philathea is talking about, that that tension in the flashpoints, and they're, they're related mm-hmm. to each other. At one point in the book, we talk about like a tapestry, and it has to be pulled to make that tension. But if you pull a tapestry too much, you're going to fray the threads. And that's yeah. the flashpoint. That's the break, right? And, and we talk, we frame it in this larger political context of Obama and this hope and this idea of post-racialism, but obviously that does not work out, right? And I think a lot of us were very suspicious of that narrative. But that tension isn't just there. That tension underlies everything in the classroom. That tension comes into the classroom with us every day. It shapes whether or not we talk about things, how we talk about things, and then when that thread snaps, how do you handle that flashpoint in the classroom? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just as a side note, uh, when, when the election took place, I was teaching in East Texas, but I also grew up in Houston. And maybe people wore political campaign stuff all over their bodies all the time before 2008. I don't remember it. Um, but I remember that being a point of tension at the campus that I was teaching at. And the only reason I bring that up is because I remember that type of tension one other time. 
when I was in high school in Texas and people were wearing David Duke stuff all over their bodies. That's it. Yeah. That those are those are some kind of bookends, right? Like explicit white supremacy, hopes of post-racialism. Another term that we use is um, differential racialization. So, you know, the idea that the way we experience these various systems of race has, you know, a lot to do with our intersectional identities, right? And so it, it really struck me, Matt, when you were setting up the question and the way you saw 2008 and you articulated it um, very much in the terms of, um, of the economy, um, with the collapse of these major businesses. And what I remember about 2000, yeah, you know, I, I remember the conversations about the economy, but that wasn't the thing that created an anxiety in my communities. Because for most of us, we had nothing to do with Enron anyway. So the collapse of it didn't really affect our lives. And it goes back to that same argument that Black folks made about the Great Depression, right? Like the Great Depression happened and Black folks didn't even know that it was a depression. And there was some of that happening in 2008 so that the candidacy and then the election of Obama, we knew there, there was an economic crisis happening, but there was an even bigger racial um, crisis happening. And what we do in the book is combine those two things to show how there was a very strong neoliberal thread that's involved in how and why we talk about tension in the classroom. But even more than that, it's about recognizing that what race means and the tension surrounding the term is very much situational and is going to be dependent on the subject positions of both the faculty and the students in that mm -hmm. class. That's really good. Yeah, smart. But when we talk about the neoliberal university, we talk about lack of freedom or agency that professors have because the student is becoming more of a consumer. So you want to please the consumer. And because you want to please the consumer, that is driving the activity in the classroom more so than some other kind of value system you might have. Meaning even if I make my student uncomfortable or they don't agree with their grade, I know that there is some kind of learning outcome or some kind of idea or concept or some kind of point in this learning journey that I want them to meet. That is most important, not pleasing them because I want them to be happy and we want to make sure student retention is good and the board of trustees are happy and we don't lose money. So the subtext is these kind of external factors become a consequence for what should be happening in a sequestered space that kind of protects a particular value system. Not knowing Obama personally and not being able to read his mind. There's this also, there's also this idea that we touch on in the book about how there was a birther campaign going on and how his Christianity was also, um, uh, questioned as he was running for president. So in terms of his functioning as a quote unquote regular American politician, some of what my colleague Lee brought up about who qualifies as American or an American professor, American studies professor, it could be applicable to who qualifies as an American president. And if you have these external things that are in play, then you're not looking necessarily to just run your agenda without this intrusion. You're thinking about satisfying, if not the consumer, you're satisfying your constituents. And then you're, you're playing this, this, this game of sorts to make you still seem viable as a president 
as an American president, underscore American president, because you immediately are suspect. You were suspect before you were even elected. And so that's not to say he wasn't genuine with many of his policies, but I think he understood that he was always under the microscope. And he's he's a good antidote for, for some of the things we're talking about as it relates to freedom, lack thereof, or agency as it relates to how you navigate or traverse some of these terrains when race is implicated because of how people read race differently. He had a white mama and a black daddy, but people saw a black man and not just a black man. They saw a Muslim black man, even though he didn't practice Islam. But here, here's the thing, though, with Obama, and um, this is why it, it makes it a good um, correlation to teaching, is that like Obama was never elected to be transformative. At least not yes. in terms of policy. He was elected to be exactly what he was, which was centrist, right? Not radical at all. But the part of him that was supposed to be radical was the optics. The fact that we now have this person of color, you know, like barrier breaking figure in the White House. So he did exactly what he was sent to the White House to do. And that way, it was a very successful administration. The question for us as professors, when we walk into the classroom, we're think, when we're thinking about teaching with tension, is what is our goal? Is it to be transformative or is it to maintain the status quo? And I think that's some of what you're speaking to, Philathea, when we create assignments, when we add readings, when we make a choice to either um, you know, teach with an anti-racist pedagogy or not, what exactly do we want to do as faculty in the classroom? And Obama is a really good like political correlation to that kind of question that we always have to ask. Philathea is saying Obama mirrors this, you know, this need to meet the anxieties of the uh, of the populace, of the voters, whatnot. It somehow echoes or mirrors that of faculty who have to worry about teaching evaluations and how their bodies yes. are read. Yes. And, yes. You know, I think about that and I think about, okay, so I'm a white dude. I'm six foot one and a half. I'm got gray hair and I can say things in my class that I know my wife who teaches Latino studies as well. We both teach Latino studies. I know that she cannot get away with mm-hmm. it. She has been told that she hates white people on her teaching evaluations. And she teaches in some of the most cautious ways possible. At least she did before tenure. She's still, she can be a little feisty now and a little in her face now, but she still, she still won't say some of the things that I'll say in a class. And so I think about that as a mirror for how Obama gets um, lambasted, and, you know, he should be criticized. I, I got no problem with that. But at the same time, I think that those energies towards conciliation and compromise, which caused problems in terms of Islamophobia and uh, immigration, were part of the fact that, that he was not being read as an American from the outside. And then we look at the way in which the the press is positioning Biden is this radical person who is doing so much more than Obama. Well, he's got a hell of a lot more freedom than Obama. Mm-hmm. Because he's an old white dude. Um, and nobody's going to question his American. Yeah. The use of the Obama presidency to frame the challenges of teaching right now is so useful within the book in both explicit and implicit ways. And as we talk about it more, I, you know, I find it even more persuasive. And, and one of the things that I you know, can think of 
most immediately about is, you know, there is an increasing pressure to do things like decentering the professor in the classroom, right? And this is something that has, you know, strong pedagogical theory, empirical data backing it up, that this is this is a technique that is going to improve student outcomes, so on and so forth. And and in many cases, I think that's probably correct. At the same time, it is definitely different for somebody, as Lee described, who goes in with a presumption of competence, conscious or unconscious, because of how they look, to decenter their expertise, right? Because they are going in with that advantage. Uh, And I think it's exactly the same when you talk about Obama, right? That he had to prioritize seeming and looking presidential, because he was going in with the presumption that he was not presidential. Yes, let's not forget the tan suit. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And all of the things that he had to do to maintain Mm -hmm. that authority and look the part and act the part and play the part, obviously other presidents, both before him and since, have not had to hold up. Biden included. And it's really interesting for thinking about the the position that the professor has, the teacher has in, in the classroom, having to balance that presumption of competence and that expectation of authority is very different for people who are facing prejudice and discrimination than it is for people who are not. Maybe this is too much snark, but I think we all know that there are probably professors out there who are not the best at teaching, uh, don't give it their all. And maybe they echo the president that followed Obama, but people presume a type of authority on them. One of the things that I wish we had talked about in the book, but I didn't think about it until the book was out, was about (laughs) respectability politics, because that's really what we're talking about here too, right? Is the fact that particularly when you are faculty of color, And in in a a lot of cases for white women, too, there is this certain expectation about how you are supposed to carry yourself when you're in these intellectual spaces. And you are not given a lot of latitude or leeway. Exactly what you were talking about, Lee, with your your wife, right? And, And the fact that her subjectivity has to come into play in how she presents the course content to students. And I remember... Here um, at the University of Alabama, I teach a large lecture, Early American Lit course, where I have 150 students. And so I get three TAs for the course because we get one TA for every 50 students, right? And this particular semester, all three of my TAs were white and they were men and they were all creative writing students. So not a single like um, specialist in literature, particularly early American literature among them. But I was, as you were talking about, Matt, trying to create a decentered classroom or whatever. You know, I was trying to do that. So I ceded a lot of my authority. In fact, you know, I had my students call me by my, my first name. Even This was in the first couple years of teaching. So let me say that didn't last very long. But anyway. Um, at the end of the semester, the course evaluations were really, really, really low. I mean, like just heartbreakingly low. Um, they talked about how much they hated the class. And in a number of evaluations, the students did say what I really loved were the Friday breakout sessions. So my TAs would lead the discussion sessions on Friday. And they said those were really fantastic. And they were referencing my TAs by name and, and, and giving them the title doctor. And they gave me the title, Miss, 
because they couldn't see that I was the one who was the um the professor in the front of the class. And they talked about how great the lesson plans were and how creative um my team and the you know the worst part of all is that I gave my TAs the lesson plans for those Friday classes. So it was a really valuable learning experience for me in terms of um thinking about what it might mean for a black woman to teach in a decentered classroom. And I just decided that ain't a thing. It ain't it it, it ain't a thing for me. Like after that semester, from then on, students have to call me Dr. Smith. And I'm up there at the front of the class. I'm going to start off class with like a five minute lecture so that students know I know what I'm talking about. And then we, we can go wherever the class goes from from there. But it it just really hit home for me. What it means for somebody like me to be up in that space is going to look very different from somebody like Lee. Yeah. And I, I'll just say that there's something radical and transformative for students about having that highly structured hierarchical classroom with a person of color or a, a female in the in the center right with that location of authority right yeah, yeah. um and i remember i used to be like oh i just call me lee or call me bebo it doesn't matter and then i heard so many of my female colleagues are like like they won't call me doctor i'm like screw it every semester and i and i think every white male professor needs to do this say you will call me doctor such and such and you will do this because you often fail to do this to my female and co uh, colleagues of color and, yes. and make that an explicit part of the conversation, mm -hmm. nice. and and contention faculty, right? That oh, all, right. That, yeah. That's yeah. also the yeah a presumption that they have you know lesser degrees of authority, lesser degrees. Yeah, of I was just going to jump in too um, in the context of this conversation and mention that although we didn't center as a category the idea of respectability politics as a significant piece. Um, and teaching with tension as it relates to race, we did have one of our writers, Corinne Wolford, speak about it in her chapter where everyone knows Everybody teaching knows. Ferguson in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And um, she spoke about many things. Uh, a lot of it was anecdotal. And she also talked about the significance of a professor. You could also say most generally a teacher reflecting on and being able to pivot and adjust when you get information from your students as you do your your um, your curriculum. But um, in her chapter, she said she wanted to commit to this idea of and I'm, I'm reading directly here. She wanted to discredit respectability politics early in the course, since I was eager to suggest to my students that one's rights are not a function of one's respectability and to demonstrate how decades of research on the black community have shifted the blame for inequality from racism to deficiencies in black culture, end quote. So this is a white woman speaking about teaching and she has a certain subject position because of her whiteness as she teaches students in her class, some of whom are black. The black students push back a little bit because even though in principle or theoretically you understand this to be true, like my colleague Cassie said, when you put it in practice, it doesn't always go over well. So you can hold it as value, but you have to figure out if you want to go from WB to Boys' ideas of double consciousness, how to understand how you're being read by people who are part of mainstream white culture or society, being read in ways that are in tension with how you see yourself. And if you want a certain kind of experience, then you you adjust so that you can have ultimately the experience you need in order to do what you have to do. So uh, Welford goes on to say, 
quote, later in the semester, I was humbled to realize that understanding the concept of respectability and even hearing my critique of it did not necessarily mean that the students in my classroom could be free of respectability politics themselves. Mm-hmm. One of my black students, a Ferguson resident, invaded against the use of black English, arguing that it was unintelligent and embarrassing. In my written comments, I countered that black English has its own grammar and coherence, but, um, end quote. But then she goes on to talk about how the students, as I pointed out earlier, had to deal with, quote, and then this is her, a stark illustration of the of Du Boisian double consciousness, end quote. And so she she said that then she she began to have like a more dynamic way of framing the idea of the inherent value of black bodies and subjectivities, regardless of respectability politics, keeping in mind that the lived realities of black people often have to keep both of those things together. I am valuable regardless of if I yell, if I fight back, if I'm not on my best behavior, for example, if I'm interacting with a cop. But at the same time, if I want to go home, you know, I might have to play into these respectability policies. Because she talks about that with the Michael Brown situation in her chapter and some comments her, her students gave her as a result. It's a survival strategy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. She's aware of that as a teacher. And we're talking about the, you know, pedagogical strategies. One of the things that I think resonates through the whole volume is, and this is something we talked about as editors and what was impressed upon us by our outside readers is it's important to have self-reflective practices and to not always think that, what I believe going into this ex- is this experience is always going to be fixed and I'm moving. I need to be able to adjust, to adapt, to take the information from, mm-hmm. from my mm-hmm. students and from my colleagues and find better ways or more nuanced ways of teaching, particularly when it deals, when, when it comes to dealing with race. And we had like very quickly, like um, one of Cassie's graduate students talk about teaching prison and she was black is a black woman teaching black men primarily and she thought because of her 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 race that she would almost immediately have this kind of rapport with them but then kind of what we talked about with you Matt when you were framing the the initial question with attention to kind of like money dynamics and Enron and so forth and so on in similar ways she was doing that just kind of putting thinking about the race piece but there was a disconnect because of class and because of her education yeah. and her gender. So the assumptions that she made mm-hmm. ended up working against her and she had to find ways to build rapport and to let them know that she was not an outsider, even though she took for granted that she would not be seen as an outsider. And she did. She built rapport with them. She was able to to have those conversations around literature, but she had to close that gap that she didn't know initially was there. She pivoted, she adjusted, she found ways to do what she wanted to do better because she was able to read the audience in front of her. It's not always a white professor with with black students or non-white students. It can sometimes be a person who looks very much like the people in their classroom. Once you, if you, I don't want to use humble, that sounds a little um, condescending, but if you're open enough um, elastic enough as an educator to, to, to do these kind of improvisational things, um, then you can really have some good work be produced in your class. 
That's it. I I really want to follow up on that. One of one of the things I remember from your chapter, Philathia, is one of your students saying, "America is not the yes. same for everybody." <laughs> and on, it's a great line, and it's 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 one of those great moments where students sort of it's it's a very simple line, but it sums up so much, and it's it 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 forces so much interrogation, and of course. One of the ways, one of the most obvious ways it's not the same for everybody is in terms of race, class, gender. But another way is in terms of geography. And that's one of the things I really appreciated about your your book is that you are trying to capture the way teaching with tension is going to be different based upon where you are in the country, also based on what kind of institution you're in, right? Uh, and so one of the things I thought I'd like to ask you is, as an educator, how do you assess that, right? Like if you want to teach with tension, if you want to force your students to grapple with issues of racialization, racial formation, intersectionality, how do you assess the circumstances of your classroom so that you can can choose techniques, texts that will fit to the institution right, and the situation that you happen to be teaching in? You know, that, that's, that's one quick example I have of that. And um, the University of Alabama is a really, really great place to think about um, that question about geography. So, like, I started at the University of Alabama in 2010. So this was a couple of years after, after Obama. And when I first started, more than half of the students were from within the state of Alabama. They came from really conservative um, you know, backgrounds, Southern missionary Baptist kind of things. And I, t- and I teach early American literature. So I'm all about the Puritans. And when I would teach um, about Winthrop or, or about Bradford, I never had to break down biblical references in the text to students. I could say, oh, Noah, wow. they know exactly who I'm talking about. I could say, <laughs> Noah, Joe, they know exactly, I mean, you know, they could, Yes, exactly. They could teach me about Job, right? So I mean, like, I mean, like, you know, like we were just sailing along when we were talking about these Puritan texts. And of course, the flip side of that was it was really, really difficult for me to get them to think complexly about how these myths of Puritanism have informed even where we are in the 21st century. So fast forward about five or six years and the demographics at the University of Alabama are certainly changing. And it's no longer the case that the majority of my students are in state. In fact, and it may even be the case right now, more than half of our student body consists of students from beyond the state of Alabama. We get so many students from California, from Texas, from the Midwest. I'm like, what in the heck are y'all doing in Tuscaloosa, right? You skipped over all of those other, you know, (laughs) state institutions that come to you. But of course, I mean, you know, it's a great place to study, right? And, you know, like have, having a good football program probably doesn't hurt either. <laughs> anyway. it, is a, it is a good school, though. Let's yes. Not, uh, yes. Yes. It, it is, is a very it good is, school. It is. Um, <laughs> and so anyway, suddenly, like, I had this one student raise her hand one day, like, I, I was talking about Job um, and the whole myth of, of patience that surrounds Job's story, and she raised her hand, she said, who's Job? And I just had this moment, like, <laughs> I was just dumbstruck. Like, what do you mean who was Job? We all know who Job And half the class raised their hand and said, you know, like, they just weren't familiar with this biblical story. And suddenly that kind of made me take a step back and really think about how I was teaching these texts. And now my approach to these Puritan narratives 
is the exact opposite of what it was in 2010. And I assume nothing at all in terms of what my students know. So anyway, that's just a little example of, of how geography matters. We, we had like a little casual conversation before um, our podcast today. And one of the things that we talked about was how we came into this project and Cassie and Cassie and I are like she pointed out we're all of us are classmates from Purdue but Cassie and I we built a friendship too while we're at uh, Purdue that has continued beyond Purdue we even make like going to CLA the CLA conference our reunion conference and so um, based on our friendship we can pick up the phone call each other chat and stuff and in one of those conversations, we talked about our experiences teaching African-American lit and we were comparing and contrasting our experiences. And as a result of that, we're like, hey, let's talk about this at the conference. Let's let's put some the panel together for the conference. We put the panel together. And then after that, we, we moved into thinking about formalizing this in print. And now you have teaching with tension. We brought Leon, who's wonderful, like so wonderful um, in, in his conversations and his contributions. So in preparation for today, we talked about that and Lee said, you know what, I think these conversations with with friends and colleagues are so fertile and they're very productive, particularly when you talk about um, moving from just commiserating into like some solutions. And this I'm going to pass the baton to him. He talked about his friend, Drew Lapenza. He's another author in the book. And Lee talked about how his conversations with Drew helped him to think differently about teaching race. And I think, Matt, to get to your 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 question directly due to space, location, how you are situated in America, what America looks like to you, because America isn't the same for everyone, as my student pointed out. Drew and Lee's conversation really helps to illustrate. If, if I have a desire for the book, it's that there are a lot of faculty who don't have other people to commiserate with or to strategize with. And maybe they only see each other at conferences, but this provides that. So I'll just kind of give that background story. I think there are two ways in which Drew and I became really good friends. Drew had been hired at, at Sam Houston State the year before me. He was one of the interview people that, that interviewed me and hired me. Um, and so we were both in East Texas, which is very conservative, very white. Um, but both he teaches about indigenous lit. I teach about Chicano lit. And I remember the first, probably one of the first lengthy conversations I had with Drew was after uh, Halloween, I had a bucket of candy and he just kept coming back for more candy. So I think that's part of why we're good friends. Um, he would steal my candy. But the other thing is, I remember teaching a class, probably a multi-ethnic lit class or Chicano lit class. And one of my students said something about colored people. And I was just like, what the hell? And I immediately went to Drew afterwards who shared an office next to mine, right? Or right next door. And I was like, Drew, what the hell is up with this? Are we in the 1950s? And I was I was clearly complaining about my student. And Drew was like, yeah, I get what you're saying. But sometimes don't you think that our students just don't have the language? And it's our job to teach them the language? And that, that was like a conversation that just like pivoted my thinking about teaching. It was like, okay, I need to not dismiss the student, but provide a language. For my students from there like i would ask questions to drew about how do you teach indigenous lit what do you what do you teach when we're teaching baldwin because neither of us do uh african-american lit but we incorporate it quite a bit 
Um, and Drew would ask me questions about Latino Lit. And so that became a great bonding moment. So we actually improved each other's teaching um, and we're still good friends today. What you're talking about and providing that forum for casual collegial conversations that help to expand and inform our teaching practices, but also just give us a, a venue and a sounding board, for, uh, you know, for our scholarship, for the, the our interest, for our readings, our interpretations, like how we're talking about books, etc. Like, that's one of the reasons this podcast exists. It's one of the good things about being a member of the academy is that when you find those spaces and when you find those those groups of people where you can have those conversations, it is incredibly rewarding and enriching. Right? Uh, and so I'm always looking for how do you, how do you manufacture those opportunities mm-hmm. more? Right. There's two two more things I, I definitely want to ask about, and, uh, and I'm going to start with maybe the most obvious one, which is. Where do you see Mark Twain's place <laughs> in discussions of race in the 21st century? Right. I, uh, one of my frequent, you know, uh, conversants and collaborators is is Jocelyn Chadwick, who, uh, you know, has has written at length about Twain and race, and particularly Huckleberry Finn and the character of Jim. I'm also a big fan of Cassie's article about Jim. One of Jocelyn's arguments is that these this this is a great example of a sensitive text that we need to sustain and a figure who produces sensitive texts that we need to engage with, even if it's not Huckleberry Finn, right? Even if there are lots of other Twain works that engage race in terms that actually are useful for the classroom. And so I wanted to sort of pose that that question to the three of you. This is just one example of many figures who are sort of canonical American authors, right? That maybe there's a rationale for moving away from teaching their work and maybe not. And so I wanted to talk about the specifics of where do you see Twain's place in teaching with tension, right? Because he is certainly one of the authors for whom these controversies arise all the time primarily at the secondary school level. It's kind of like what we talked about earlier, the, the distinctions between flashpoint and tension and also rushing resolution. You know, right now it's this whole thing about cancel culture. Yeah. And I think that, that that's another rushing to a resolution and, a, and another statement of exhaustion. Not that there shouldn't be things that we don't give credence to or not that there shouldn't be things as a society we decide should be silenced a bit or, or situated differently. For example, the Confederate monuments, people have talked about whether or not they should be in museums as opposed to being destroyed altogether. Right. I say that to preface my comment about Huckleberry Finn because I don't see works from Mark Twain or works from a Flannery O'Connor as synonymous with the Confederate statue. I just don't. I just don't. Because when you see a Confederate statue, that's almost like a statement of values, like we are subscribing to these values. And as a society, we're saying or a segment of our society is saying this is is what we uphold and we wanted this to have been the trajectory our country followed. It it wasn't the trajectory we follow. And so, you know, we are paying homage to something that has passed with nostalgia that we wish would be present. That's different than reading a text and critically engaging with it 
I think, storytelling to, to kind of draw from Barbara Christian. She talks about, I would say, Black people in particular, but kind of drawing from West African cultural ways of being, going back to the griot. Storytelling becomes like almost like a cosmological, theoretical space. It becomes a way to understand people and the world. So stories become a window that we peek through to see. And white Southerners like Faulkner, Wayne, and O'Connor, they show a lot. And they tell on themselves a lot. <laughs> and you can learn a lot about white Southerner pe- Southern people yeah. by reading their stories. And you don't read to agree with necessarily or to say this is how things should be. You basically read to look through the window to figure out how someone from that time period, because no one writes in a vacuum, kind of drawing from new historicist approaches approaches to reading, how someone from that time period moves through the world. Because even if what they write is not necessarily something they would subscribe to, local color that is coming across through their writing, dialogue, any of those things, they're drawing from what they know in that time period. So you're going to kind of tap into another world, you know, figuratively speaking. You're looking through a window. And so I just I just taught Flannery O'Connor alongside N.K. Jennison this semester. I put those two women together, interestingly mm-hmm. enough. And we had great conversations around them. And Lee and I had, I think Cassie was in the course too, but I'm not sure. But Lee and I had a similar experience at uh, Purdue where we read Morrison alongside Faulkner. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so I think there can be very fertile ground to teach works by people who might have themselves been racists, arguably speaking, because their stories are kind of sovereign and standalone. I think it's Ian Forrester. He talked. Yeah, Forrester, he talks about like the, the sovereignty. You, you forget the name of the writer after a while and you just are with the story. The story becomes its own thing. So, so I, I just think you have to do it well. And, and I say that with a great deal of humility. But if people know how to do it well, then you get into the analytics of the story. You understand the culture. You figure out the characters and why they say that and think that way and what they reveal about human foibles and and our proclivities. And, and you kind of remove the writer for a bit. The stories become a theoretical space, a way of kind of disinvestigating and exploring the world. Cassie, you were going to say something. I was, but um, Philathia took the conversation a little bit farther. My, my first reaction was to the idea that we have Confederate monuments, but then we have novels like you know, the ones um, created by Mark Twain, and they aren't exactly the same thing. And I was going to think about how they are in the same category, just in terms of like, if we go back to Bart and his questioning about what an author is and his insistence that once the text is out there, forget about the author, right? It's the text. And so that text does become a monument of the South. And I do think that Twain is indulging in a certain kind of nostalgia that goes hand in hand with the lost cause. I mean, you have this young boy forging a relationship with this grown behind man and they Mm -hmm. are sailing down a river. It's the same dynamic that we had with the help. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like we know how problematic that movie and that book was for a lot of people who saw it as being problematically romantic. But that aside, 
I do think there's tension in teaching Mark Twain's text, and I don't try to reconcile that tension for my students at all. I don't want to move it to a different place. I don't want them to make peace with the racist language in the text. I don't want them to think that Mark Twain is just a product of his time and that it's okay. I want them to grapple with what it means for us in the 21st century to be reading these 19th century texts that use racist language. And to think about, um, Lee, you were talking a few minutes ago about how sometimes the job is to give students the language to have these conversations. I think that a, that a text like Huck Finn is fantastic for doing exactly that. And in fact, the funny thing is my experiences teaching, um, teaching Huck Finn in my first couple of years here is part of what led to the kinds of conversations that Philathea and I were having that led to teaching with tension. Um, it was the fact that like students didn't want to say the N-word in my class. They had no problem with saying the, the, the derogatory language um, directed at Native Americans, but the N-word was like the wall. Hmm. I can talk about perhaps why that was or whatever, but the, the fact is like they really struggled just to even talk about Jim, to talk about the racial dynamic between Jim and Huck. And it was a real struggle for me initially to figure out how to navigate them through the text so that we could talk about um, the problematics of the race and talk about why even in 21st century, we find it uncomfortable to talk about another writer who's using racism just because you are talking, it doesn't make you racist for referring to the fact that, you know, these words are in the um, text. But anyway, I just say, I think that Mark Twain's canon is really, really, really good, rich material for teaching with tension. When we think about tension as something that's productive. I'm, a, I'm in agreement with that. And I, as a quick, as a very quick follow up, um, one of the things I think literature does very well is, is it gives um, a voice piece for navigating the conversations. And what I mean by that is instead of saying, this is how I think, you can locate yourself in the text. And so say when this this character or this this author who wrote this this argument in response to the novel or the essay is saying this. And that's what I often do with my students. Instead of having them lead with their personal opinions, I will say, well, what does the text say in response to this question? What did, what did Booker T. Washington say? Or what is Baldwin saying? Mm-hmm. You can see them sometimes struggle because they want to say what they want to say. <laughs> but I'm saying, no, I want you to be able to digest this argument and, and, and put these people in conversation with each other. If we have problems talking about race today, or for example, one of the things Lee said he struggled with is the way whiteness is conflated with humanity. And so for Huck to have this moment of realization about Jim by saying he's white on the inside is a little chafing. That's another way of just talking about colorblindness, I guess, and the problematics of colorblindness. So maybe no one has quite the language or it's a little nebulous, but you have a novel. Mm -hmm. And so you, you find yourself in the novel and you let your students use the novel as a way to kind of have these conversations. They talk through the characters. They talk through the plot. They talk about the themes. And all of a sudden now you have fodder or you have content 
to have these conversations. They can still offer their opinions, but their opinions in some ways become infused or connected or intertwined with the novel. So they don't feel as much as at stake because now they're kind of using the, the novel or the narrative as the space through which they navigate their ideas. I love what Cassie and Falathea are saying about the ways in which Twain and, and other writers can be really productive of conversation. And, you know, earlier Cassie and Falathea mentioned, you know, whether or not literature can be somehow a monument. I think all of us and most teachers, I hope, treat literature like a sandbox. We all get in there with our students, <laughs> we build something together. The next day we maybe knock some stuff down and build something up again. But there are people who treat literature like monuments, and we need to recognize that. And Twain's literature especially, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. Well, no, I, McCarthy's, and there, there are the people. But I just read uh, the, the Trump administration's 1776 report. That, that is the celebratory model of education. It's like, it's, it's the banking model of education. We are going to feed you some Twain today, and then the next day we're going to feed you something else. And that is opposed to what we're talking about here. We're talking about learning with our students, providing them a toolkit, but also learning from them because of self-reflection. But then the other thing I'd like to say about Twain, I, I am far from a Twain expert. Cassie and Felicia are much more so than me, but I enjoy teaching uh, Huck Finn. And I enjoy it because it presents this challenge. Students have often read it before and they come in and they come in with the idea of, this is Texas racist. This text is anti-racist. And I don't need to think about this text anymore because I've read it in high school. And I tell them, and, I, and I've got this shtick because of teaching Twain, look, y'all, this is the 21st century United States. Of course, everything is racist. And that used to be really funny in like 2007. And it got less funny around 2015, 2016. And I said, no, but what I really mean by that is I don't want to have a question about whether Twain is racist or not, or whether Huck Finn is racist or not. Because then my students who think that Huck Finn is racist are going to think that the students who don't think it's racist are racist themselves and vice versa. And we will not have a conversation. So I said, the one question that you are forbidden from ask, asking in this class because, you know, we all have these like really democratic classes that everybody can just ask anything. I say, the one thing you cannot ask is, mm -hmm. is this text racist, sexist, homophobic, whatever. Rather, the question that you can ask and you can reframe is, how does race function mm -hmm. in this moment mm -hmm. or in this text? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Felicia mentioned that I really chafe at that one section of, of, of Huck Finn where Huck is like, I know Jim was white inside because that's like, Here's this text that is trying to say that slavery is wrong. And then at the end, it still holds up whiteness. And I think that's a really horrific and wonderful moment in that text. And it's so useful to teach because students are like, yes, Huck gets it. And I'm like, what does he get? He doesn't escape it. Yeah. And then when they say it, they're like, oh, crap. But that, I mean, isn't that beautiful? Because a lot of times today... We want to view racists are like the Klan. They're wearing khakis and carrying tiki torches. Mm -hmm. uh, or they got Trump flags on the back of their truck. Mm -hmm. And then anti-racists are the good people. Yes. But what if the good people are racist too? Mm -hmm. And Shannon Sullivan's got a great book called Good White People. And it's about how good white people uphold white supremacy. And I think that's a conversation you can get to 
with a fundamentally different set of questions. Mm -hmm. And Twain and Baldwin and other stellar writers like Morrison push us to ask those questions. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was thinking about, as you were talking, Lee, the whole all lives matter versus black lives matter. Yeah. So it's kind of like if we were to parallel that Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn gives us a moment where Huck Finn is basically, I'm not racist. You know, Jim is white inside. One of my best friends is black. (laughs) (laughs) We just just went down the river together. And he shouldn't shouldn't be enslaved. It echoes what we see here where you have well-meaning, and I want to say that, right? You have well-meaning white people who believe that to solve racism is just to see the humanity of everyone in the sense of the universal claim Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, we're all the same, not understanding that the subtext of that is often a way of seeing people as white and white being the default standard. And with that flattening, you, you kind of uphold white supremacy without understanding that you're doing that. And so the story from Mark Twain, Huckleberry Finn, shows us an earlier iteration and it gives students a tool to understand how we're, we're still grappling with some of those things even now in the 21st century. With the right kinds of questions, you can lead students into a really wonderful conversation about what is being seen when you peek through the window and, and look at the stories. I love all of what has been said here. It, it rings very true with the the broader canon of Twain's work and and the specific most often taught novel Huckleberry Finn and I, I expect none of you are is so familiar with the the criticism of the 20th century as as I am forced to be as resident scholar at the Center for Mark Twain Studies but that framing basically a strong need for every critic from essentially the 1920s until the 1980s to say either this is racist and here's why, or this is anti-racist and here's why. The Twain has to either become the achievement of colorblind litness or the achievement of anti-racism, or he has to be forever tied to the N-word as a sole definer of racism. And of course, his career is much more complex than that. And it's a very easy way to start to talk about things like racialization and intersectionality because it's all there in his work, in his life, in his ability to certainly transform some of his perspectives from the situation in which he was raised to, you know, his anti-imperialist and in many ways anti-racist political opinions in the latter part of his life, but also to not get there, right? He he might have gotten there to a certain degree with African-Americans. He mm-hmm. might have gotten there with indigenous people in South Africa and New Zealand. He might have gotten there with Asian-Americans, but he never got there with Native Americans. Right. And so that sort of comparative racialization model is plays out in Twain's work and his career in very transparent ways. And even within the novel itself, right, the one of the other major strains of Huckleberry Finn criticism throughout the 20th century is like the end is a mistake. We're all going to agree the end is a mistake. And the question is, is it a mistake because 
it fails in this anti-racist na- narrative or is it a mistake because it fails in this racist narrative? point is that <laughs> the end's not a mistake. The end is there. And that's actually in some ways the most useful thing for students to talk about and deal with the tension the way that you're describing. Yeah. Hemingway wants to say everything after, all right, then I'll go to hell doesn't count. But it does count. It has mm-hmm. to count, right? And that's exactly where the narrative in many ways gets interesting Absolutely. and forces students to grapple with the possibility that Huckfin is not a hero, that he and Jim have not sort of built this homosocial friendship, that all of the interpretations of the 20th century don't hold up under the scrutiny of the return of Tom Sawyer to the narrative. Yeah. That all sort of fits with the way that you're talking about teaching with tension. Mm -hmm. The last question I wanted to ask, and maybe the most difficult one, since at least 2017, and I'm thinking specifically of the Unite the Right rally at, at University of Virginia, it has been apparent that reactionary coalitions seek out college campuses as sites for conflict. Absolutely. And even sometimes explicitly discuss them as battlegrounds, right? Places to bring violence. And as Lee details in his chapter, for many years before that, they have been erecting an infrastructure for manufacturing campus controversies, targeting professors and instructors for harassment and intimidation, and pressuring colleges to eliminate critical race theory is now, you know, what they they say, but... What critical race theory means to them is just any discussion of race at all. (laughs) And so one of the double binds I see in our present moment is that the, the urgencies you identify in teaching with tension have to be reconciled with these political forces from outside our profession who are strategically positioning colleges as sites of conflict so they can incite media panics and sometimes even violent demonstrations like Unite the Right, which draws attention away from other sites of injustice and other social movements, right? These reactionary coalitions want mass media debate about critical race theory specifically because they don't want mass media debates about the prison industrial complex, racialized policing, redlining, oil companies violating native sovereignty, so on and so on. And so when instructors choose to teach with tension, do they risk enabling this cynical political strategy? How do you account for the peculiarities of white lash politics at this particular moment in the sort of strange campus environments that, I mean, I know from your writing, you're all very familiar with? That's a good question. I mean, are you asking about the, the pushback against CRT or the larger culture wars as like the framing of that on the right as a distraction from those those issues of indigenous sovereignty, prison industrial complex. Because my immediate inclination is to say those things don't stop us from teaching those things. But it goes to this larger question about, well, how are they going to stop folks from teaching about these these central issues of justice? Um, and they're going to stop them by fighting against their their tenure, uh, the, 
the the case of Nicole Hannah Jones the other day at uh, North Carolina would be an example of that. Um, but they're also going to to do it through neoliberalism and the cutting of university budgets, right? So, like when my situation was going down at ASU and I was being harassed by white supremacists, which I talk about in that chapter for teaching a class about whiteness, at the same time, the university wouldn't come out very strongly in favor of the class. They just said academic freedom. One of the reasons they couldn't come out so strongly is because the state legislature was removing $100 million from university budgets in the state at that time. I don't know. I I don't have a a solid answer on this. Um, I I don't think it's a reason for us to stop doing it. Am I worried about those things? Yeah, a little bit but I'm, I'm more focused about what happens in the classroom. At some point, the states are going to cut so much budget that there's, there's nothing left to cut. You know, w- one thing that I'll, I'll point out real quick, too, is that the three of us, Amelie and Aphalathia, um, I'm not sure what, what your status is, Matt, but we are all speaking from a very privileged position right now, so we need to acknowledge that, which tenure. is the fact that, like, all three of us have tenure. So, mm-hmm. you know, Lee can teach a class on whiteness and not be concerned about, you know, whether the consequences what the consequences are going to look like for a tenure decision. So, um, and this is a conversation that I have had with like doctoral students because I, I teach critical race theory in the Renaissance, so in, in the pre-modern context. And I've had this conversation with instructors because um, we have quite a few instructors in the English department here about the risk of teaching courses that focus on critical race theory or anything that can be perceived as anti-racist. And there is a very real concern for how to do this work in ways that don't jeopardize your job in very practical terms and also your mental sanity. I mean, like, I I know, Lee, that it was really, really stressful for you when you were going through your situation, right? So there are some very, very real hefty consequences that come along with doing this work. And again, it goes back to what I was asking earlier we have to think about what our goal is. Like, is my goal to be transformative when I walk into this classroom or am I okay with simply maintaining the status quo? I also wonder if it could be a both and um, in terms of this moment where we are having attacks against critical race theory and professors being situated in a precarious position as it relates to academic freedom. I hear what you're saying, to do this work, to teach with tension, to, to teach race in these ways might kind of play into some type of larger kind of program to redirect attention away from thinking about systemic things. But critical race theory in itself is about systemic things. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what I want to say is kind of to your point about Huckleberry Finn and Mark Twain, maybe it's about asking different kinds of questions. And the question I would ask is, why critical race theory? Why now in the context of a Black Lives Matter movement that has sustained itself from when we first started talking about this book until now in 2021? Like, why now? The thing that I immediately picture is what the constitution of the protesters looked like. There weren't just people of color 
out there. If you go back to the civil rights movement of the 50s and the 60s, you also had mixed race coalitions, specifically if you think about the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and NAACP also was interracial. But in, in some ways, predominantly black spaces, if you look at people in the streets, young people in the streets, college age students um, in the streets, that's familiar from the civil rights movement, black power movement era, primarily civil rights movement, but very white, <laughs> very white. Uh, you have black folks out there yeah. in large number, but very white. Seattle, Oregon. And I wonder if the question would be why are the people in the streets, young white people who are pushing against perhaps the politics of their family or the values of their family? Why are white young people picking up their phones and texting the police or the FBI and telling them that was my uncle at mm. Capitol Hill? Mm-hmm. And so it may be a bit reductive, mm. but I'm wondering mm-hmm. if the fastest way from A to C is to say, okay, Let's go after the educators who might be giving them new ways of thinking about this country and what they want the country to look like, because these kids are going to grow up and vote. And we can't really attack the other if the other looks like us. Mm -hmm. It's harder to frame a narrative about the other being a white person. If, If I'm white, I can't say the other is white. Well, I can say they're liberal. You know, those liberals or those conservatives, we we create that dichotomy or that binary, but it's much more difficult if you're having arguments across the table at Thanksgiving, because that's family. And so I am being a bit reductive, but the question then becomes like, why now? And why is the college or the university space becoming um, more attractive as a place to to, to move into, to kind of police conversations? And I think it has to do with what the people look like who are in the streets. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. If I could just say one more thing, um, Cassie really got me thinking because, you know, it's been a while since I went through uh, the harassment campaign in 2015, I think. Um, so I kind of forgot about the emotional toll. And then I'm listening to Philathea talk about people talking around the family. And every semester I teach this whiteness class. And I get the kerfuffle uh, the first time I taught it. But now, not every semester, I teach it once a year. Um, so every spring semester I teach this class. And this semester, the the dominant theme was from my white students, the fear that they face of being rejected by their friends and family hmm. for standing up for racial justice. And I thought that was so striking because I teach uh, Learning to Be White by Thandenka, or at least the, the introductory essay. And she talks about that. But she talks about it in a way that's often contextualized by, I think the book was published like 20 years ago, and the people she's interviewing are in their like 60s then, uh, or 50s. And so I always think about that, like that fear of rejection as something that's much older. But to hear 18, 20, 30-year-olds talk about, you know, I know what so-and-so is saying is wrong, but I don't want to ruffle feathers. And for them to admit that into in front of a class of Latino, Black, and Indigenous students and Asian students. And for have the Latino student, one Latina student said, well, you need to reject that. <laughs> you, you need to be able to, to cut off your family if they say that. You need to be willing to lose friends. Otherwise, you're not standing up for us. Right. 
I think that tension, that fear of rejection, takes us back to the beginning of this conversation where Philathea was talking about the neoliberal university and teaching evaluations. Mm. You know, when, when a body walks into a classroom and that body is read, and then it is evaluated, and then those evaluations are going to read that body and determine tenure or hiring with a renewed contract or not. That is the same type of fear that our students face when they want to have a conversation about race and they don't know how and they're worried they're going to be rejected. It, it, it kind of permeates this whole conversation of like, do you stand up for what you believe in? Do you interrogate yourself? Do you interrogate your relationships or do you not? And then going back to the, your question about conservative harassment. Well, isn't that a fear too? Oh God, I taught this class. I got this backlash. Shit, do I do it again? <laughs> now I got a fear. It's not about defunding education, although it is about that. It is about making people afraid to step out of line. But so is that conversation at the at the Thanksgiving Day table. And so are those student yeah. evaluations. It's all about policing. Part of the work we're doing, or we did with teaching with tension, was to locate these conversations in this current moment. But what we're talking about right now in terms of the, the fear by white people of standing up as allies, it's always been the case that white, that white people have spoken out against these kinds of injustices. And so I'm wondering, what is it about now, about 2021, that's making white folks feel that the stakes are so much higher than they've ever been in the history of this country? I think that's, I think the fear has always been there, though. Right, it has. So that's what. I, I, so I guess, like, I'm trying to think through what's exceptional about the current moment in terms of that white fear. I'm not sure there's anything exceptional about it. The only thing that I, I mean, the only thing that I can offer here, and I don't know that it's necessarily a position I want to defend, is that it does seem as though the very institutions, the the very mythic institutions that are held in some esteem by both white supremacists mm -hmm. and the liberals, right? And I use that that word liberal in you know the classical context. Mm -hmm. Both of the yeah, both of these groups hold these institutions with a great deal of esteem and see themselves as trying to preserve them and also recognize them as now suddenly precarious. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that we have been at that level, certainly not since the late 60s. And I don't think we even got there then. It may truly be since the 1860s or the 1850s that we sort of reached that level of threat to mythic institutions that for, for many white Americans mm -hmm. are what, what it means to be American. If you put the emphasis on white and the white American piece, that's also key. Uh, and we talk a little bit about that in the volume. I think with the browning of America, and I use that term broadly, these um, institutions of higher ed are becoming also browner. And so conversations that might have been more theoretical, more like just white men meeting and just having these, you know, mental battles with each other. And I'm being a bit facetious, but you know what I'm saying? Like, there's not much at stake. You can you can have these difficult conversations and these conversations where you're talking about politics, having divergent points of view and feel as if it can stay in the theoretical and it won't do much against the status quo. But once the people in the room start changing 
and you have women there, you have brown people and they're not in places of servitude. Like they're actually at the table and they're shaping the discourse. Mm. Then now sudden it's not safe, I guess, for lack of better words, to have some of these kinds of conversations. That's maybe part of, of, of why this has become somewhat of a battlefield because it's not white, it's not male. To, to go get a college degree or to get a graduate degree. It wasn't so much about a bankable skill set or just landing a job. It used to be a statement of privilege and culture. You know, you had the money, you can go to school and you can travel the world. And this is a statement of class. Michelle Foucault's work is not controversial outside of the academy <laughs> until there are people in the streets, yeah. right, who are, yeah. who are protesting yeah. against prisons and like against police, did. right? And suddenly, now there's stakes yeah. in who is this so, guy, yeah. Foucault, who, what is it? Yeah. Absolutely. You know, we might take this back to neoliberalism in a different way, right? Mm-hmm. So we think about the ways in which states stopped investing so much in education, right? And it changes the racial makeup of institutions, right? We have this shift in the late 1970s, 1980s, where states are funding less. At the same time, universities are trying to compete because of the ranking system. So they're spending more and more money. Well, where are they getting that money? They're like, oh, crap. We need to get, at least at ASU, and I'm assuming this is uh, similar to what Cassie was talking about Mm -hmm. by recruiting uh, students from California to Alabama. You know, we need to meet these budget shortfalls. Mm -hmm. We're going to get more students. And we're going to get more international students, yep, more out-of-state students, and more students of color from mm-hmm. other states. And so that changes the racial demographic makeup of our institution. Neoliberalism shifted the idea that college was a class privilege and marker that was often associated and accrued to whiteness that he was talking about. And now that it's becoming democratized, I, I Use that very unevenly because I think that these students who are coming to college are also leaving with a shit ton of debt. Absolutely. Some colleges are saying, we need to do the right thing by these students. My university does that. But they're also looking at these students as a market, right? This is our market, and neoliberalism says that we're doing the right thing by them. And so that's changing the makeup of the institution. And so that both pushes for a different type of recruitment and retention of students. And so sometimes multiculturalism is used as a way of enticing those students in. And at the same time, you see this like neoconservative backlash saying, that's not the education that I went through. That was Lee Bebo, Philathea Bolton, and Cassie Smith, co-editors of Teaching with Tension, Race, Resistance, and Reality in the Classroom. For more information about this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash teachingwithtension. This was the first of two episodes focused on teaching in Twain in anticipation of the Center for Mark Twain Studies Summer Teaching Institute, which will take place July 13th and 14th. For registration information, follow the link in the show notes. Later this week, I'll be back to talk with the coordinator of the Institute, Jocelyn Chadwick. Until then, This has been the American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebold. Thanks for listening.